Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Okay. So you've finished your venous anastomosis. That renal vein clamp remains on so that you don't have any of that warm, refluxing blood going into the kidney and, you know, harming that, that, uh, that warm ischemia time that you're talking about. Um, tell us about the artery now. So the artery, we, um, we use the same Satinsky clamp. We want to make sure we have proximal and distal control uh, with that clamp um, to clamp around the artery, uh, and we make an arteriotomy. Um, and then here we use, uh, so we flush out the artery with the hep saline flush um, as well. And then here we use uh, an punch um, to make kind of a circumferential hole with the size of uh, the donor artery. Uh, and this is just... Um, single hole punch, uh, if you can imagine like a three hole punch, it's just a single hole punch and we make uh, a hole into the artery on the uh, anterior aspect. Um, and then we create an anastomosis here. Um, if it's a deceased donor kidney, you, sometimes you have a, a corral patch um, or an aortic patch that, or cuff that you can use to create an anastomosis here. Uh, we usually do it with a 6-O-proline and there are many different ways to do this anastomosis. Um, sometimes you can parachute uh, this anastomosis. Um, and sometimes you can also set the corners and circumferentially. Uh, so starting from the lateral side and then the, the medial. Um, everyone has a different way and a set way of doing the artery. So uh, there are a lot of variations here, even more than the vein, I think. Um, and then towards the end of the arterial anastomosis, we usually give a couple of medications or have anesthesia give them. Um, usually it's Lasix and Manitol. At our institution, we give 100 milligrams of Lasix and 12 and a half of Manitol, but the dose is not standard um, and uh, varies depending on where you're at. And what's the purpose of those medications? To help jumpstart the kidney uh, when you reperfuse um, and to kind of flush out any um, any kind of um, toxins or anything when you reperfuse as well. Any other notes about the arterial anastomosis? I think it's important to look at your the vessels of both your donor and the recipient artery. Um, you don't want to be sewing where you're pushing plaque out. You want to be if you have plaques in the recipient vessel. You want to associate you're kind of securing the plaque as opposed to pushing the plaque out just for the direction that you're sewing is one thing I tend to look at because some of our patients have pretty diseased vessels and sometimes you even get a, a donor kidney with some diseased vessels. So just looking at that when you're sewing. The difference in a deceased donor kidney and a living donor, I, think, I don't know if Anushi said this, but uh, the deceased donors have a corral patch, which is a little bit of aorta cuff. Um, that we're able to keep on to the, the deceased donor artery, and that allows a, a bigger patch to sew to. Uh, obviously, the living donor kidneys don't have a patch of the aorta attached to them, um, and so they're a small, it's just a tube that uh, is being sewn down, and so 
the anastomosis is a bit smaller um, for the living donors. Do you have to spatulate the end of that living donor in order to accomplish that, or you just manage to, to get it in? We don't spatulate. We just sew it straight in. Very cool. And then, um, you know, that leaves one tube left. How, how do you guys uh, handle the ureter? So um, before the ureter, we reperfuse the entire kidney. So we take off both clamps um, and, and uh, reperfuse the kidney um, and see how... Um, how the kidney reperfuses. Dr. Diofro will always say that I'm a little spoiled because I, I participated in more living donors than deceased donors. So I'm really used to pink kidneys. <laughs> so whenever I do the deceased donors and I don't see them being pink right away, I just have this look on my face. <laughs> um, but uh, we wait for it to reperfuse, uh, see how it reperfuses, look at all the sides, um, achieve any kind of hemostasis um, and uh, make sure to check in with the anesthesia to make sure the patient is stable. Um, and then uh, we'll take a breather and move on to um, the ureter. Um, so we will ask uh, anesthesia to clamp the Foley uh, where, where the Foley sits by, their, by the, the head by anesthesia. And then we will ask the circulators to infuse the antibiotic solution that uh, we had prepared at the start of the case that was attached to the Foley and uh, let the bladder kind of fill about 200 cc's or so, between 200 and 300 cc's. Um, and usually you can feel the Foley balloon if you just feel for the pubic bone um, and uh, you'll feel the Foley balloon and then you can easily kind of identify or see the bulge of the bladder into your field. Uh, sometimes it's not very obvious, um, especially in patients that have not made uh, a lot of urine um, and have really small bladders or thick bladder wall. And so sometimes you can use a 30 gauge needle uh, and just uh, stick the needle into the area where you think the bladder is and aspirate and look for blue, which is another reason why we use the blue solution so that uh, it doesn't get confused if, with any kind of peritoneal fluid. All right. Um, so then after that, uh, we prepare the ureter. So we'll look at the length of the ureter. We want to ideally keep shorter segments uh, without to kind of minimize the kinking of the ureter and also ischemia. So like Dr. Aaron mentioned before, the ureter is supplied by any kind of lower pole vessels. We don't have any other blood supply to the ureter. And we, um, when we are uh, I'll just throw a plug in that uh, we didn't mention earlier when we back tabled, uh, we also look at the ureter to make sure it's not stripped uh, completely of surrounding tissue or adventitia around it because that's where the blood supply to the ureter kind of runs as well. And so we don't um, free off any tissue around the ureter when we're preparing it at the back table. And, uh, so when we bring it into the field and are ready to anastomose the ureter, we kind of look at the length between um, the renal pelvis and the bladder and try to get as short of a segment as possible. Um, and the blood supply to the ureter is um, at three and nine o'clock positions. And so uh, we tie off the vessels at the end there um, and uh, then we're ready to spatulate um, the posterior aspect of the ureter 
and how it would sit on the bladder. So we only spatulate or cut down the posterior aspect um, about two to three centimeters um, after looking at how it would sit on the bladder. And you wanna see nice bleeding edges, so you know that part of the ureter is nice and well perfused. Yeah, and then uh, once we are happy with the positioning, then we um, move to uh, open up the bladder. So um, the way it would sit, we would uh, use bovi to open up uh, the bladder and we dissect uh, judiciously all the way, all the muscles, the trusor muscle, all the way down to the bladder mucosa and you'll see the mucosa bulge. So we take this down layer by layer and you can see uh, the blue uh, filled bladder uh, under the mucosal bulge. And so we just have the mucosal layer because you want this to be a mucosa to mucosa anastomosis um, to make it watertight. And uh, so once we see the mucosa bulge out, um, then we get ready to um, open up the bladder. Um, and uh, we open up the bladder with scissors and then um, start to create the anastomosis. And uh, the way we do this is with the 6O, uh, we use Maxon, some people use PDS, um, and uh, we sew heel to toe. You can imagine um, how the ureter would sit on the bladder with the spatulated ends kind of uh, touching the bladder mucosa. So we sew heel to toe. The heel is more important. Um, and so we make sure that we take small bites around the heel uh, so that you don't catch the back wall and avoid any kind of structuring of the ureter. Um, so small bites at the heel and you can take larger bites as you come around the toe. Um, and then at the end of that, we test it for any leaks by um, having them uh, instill more of the blue solution. Um, and so that if it leaks, we'll see any kind of blue leaking around the anastomosis that we can fix. Are you guys placing stents um, across the synastomosis? Good question. Um, so we don't routinely place stents, but it's more patient dependent. Uh, so if it's a very small size ureter, or if uh, for some reason, um, if the patient wasn't making a lot of urine and the bladder was very small, we can sometimes place a stent in. Or if we were worried that the lower pole vessel was maybe uh, potentially compromised um, during the procurement, then we would place a stent uh, in case there is possibility of some ischemia or stricturing of the ureter. But it's very much dependent on the case-by-case um, -case basis. There are certainly places that routinely always place a stent. Um, it just depends on your institution. If you were to place a stent, how would you do it um, you know, in the course of that anastomosis? Yeah, so we would uh, sew one side and then um, before sewing the other side, you would feed a stent over a wire proximally into the renal pelvis first and then uh, take out the wire and uh, use kind of two um, debakies to feed in the distal part of the stent into the bladder and it's a double J stent so it'll just curl into the bladder and not fall out as you're putting it in. And um, once you're done with that, you know, mucosa to mucosa connection, um, how do you close the, the muscle layer? So we close the muscularis layer of the bladder over the, uh, the toe of the 
spatulated ureter to kind of create a reflux tunnel. Uh, I'm sorry, a non-reflux tunnel. Um, and uh, we do this with uh, multiple interrupted vivovifal sutures, but that varies with institution. Is there anything in particular that are, are musts when it comes to the suture choices that you're making for, um, you know, for these two layers or does anything go? I don't think so, as long as it's an absorbable suture and, and this is a, a loose um, tie as well. You don't want to uh, tie down uh, completely onto the ureter and stricture the ureter there um, as well. Why, why absorbable versus non-absorbable? You don't want a nidus for stone formation is how I've always thought of it. Just like when you're doing the bile duct. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, okay, What's, uh, what comes next in the, uh, in the steps? After that, we, um, we're ready to close. We just make sure that there is uh, good hemostasis. Um, Sometimes we would, uh, this is where we would decide if we need to leave a drain. We don't do it routinely, but if the patient is high risk for bleeding, if they're on anticoagulation, or if there's going to be a need of anticoagulation postoperatively just because of their other comorbidities, um, or if the tissues were friable and there was uh, diffuse oozing throughout the case, and we were worried that there may be a hematoma that formed post-op that may have some compression on the kidney, we would then leave a drain around the perinephric space here. Um, so this is where we'd put the drain. Um, but other than that, we just make sure there's good hemostasis and then be ready to close. Some people routinely drain to avoid the creation of a lymphocele, which is another complication that can happen with a kidney transplant. And so if you're not meticulous in tying off all of the lymphatics, or even if you are, um, that you can develop a collection of lymph um, and so a lot of places choose to routinely drain and then they can monitor the drain output and pull it when it's diminished enough that they're less concerned about a lymphocele. There's no data that I'm aware of that leaving the drain prevents the lymphocele, um, but, uh, but that's another reason some people leave it. Okay, so, uh, so uh, your patient you know, comes out of the operating room, um, you're the, you've accomplished this surgery, um, you know, technically a success. Uh, what does the post-op monitoring look like? Um, this is something that I think is ex especially relevant to you know the general listeners out there because um, we're not all going to be doing the kidney transplant, but we should know a little bit something about how to how to manage these patients. Yeah, so every institution has uh, their own protocol for how they manage post-op kidneys. Uh, for us, we routinely get an ultrasound in PACU um, right away just to evaluate the arterial and venous flows um, and look for any kind of perinephric fluid collection hematomas. Um, also, you wanna make sure that you follow strict eyes and nose, especially if the kidney's making urine um, and also have good hemodynamic control. Uh, low blood pressure is no good for kidneys, but also blood pressure too high is not good and can uh, lead to formations of hematomas or bleeding that's unexpected. Um, and then uh, the basic resuscitation principles kind of follow here. Um, a lot of times with, with living donor transplants, for example, the kidney's working right away and makes a lot of urine, um, especially in patients that's not used to having uh, any urine at all. You wanna make sure that you 
are able to keep up with their um, output. Um, and so we match our um, I's and O's uh, with IV fluids um, hourly, especially the first 24 hours so that we can keep up with, with how much they're putting out um, in terms of urine output. Um, but you just wanna make sure that the patient gets well resuscitated and uh, has stable hemodynamics and that the ultrasound waveforms are okay. How often do you get the labs? So we get labs post-op um, and then four hours post-op and then the next day. Um, but that is also depends on the institution and their practices. So I'm going to ask you, Anushi, what do you want these residents to do if the patient has no urine output for an hour or two um, after their transplant? What do you want them to check before they call you or do for the patient before they call you? Yeah, so it's important to know if, if the kidney made any urine post-reperfusion at all, or if this was a deceased donor or a living donor. Um, and uh, I, you, know, you want to make sure you go and examine the patient, uh, which is a routine uh, given. And uh, after that, uh, check their hemodynamics and then check their Foley. We, we don't like to or I don't like to flush the Foley uh, right away, but to make sure that it's not externally kinked or compressed um, and then check the ultrasound uh, or repeat ultrasound if you need to, to evaluate for uh, most commonly uh, renal vein thrombus uh, can cause uh, uh, no decrease in urine output or abrupt decrease or no urine output postoperatively. And that is uh, one of the biggest things um, that we look for post-op. Sometimes you'll just have to flush the Foley, especially if you're seeing that there's urine in the bladder and it's not coming out. A lot of times, if you had a particularly bloody anastomosis or the patient's on anticoagulation, they definitely can get a blood clot inside uh, their bladder that can be blocking the Foley. You'll just have to flush it with you know, 10, 20 cc's. You'll probably feel more comfortable if you do it yourself, but um, sometimes you just have to do it just to make sure. And a bladder scan can be useful. That's what you were implying that there's a bladder scan shows that there's fluid in the bladder, but it's not coming out in the Foley. And that would give you a, a tip that maybe there's a clot in the Foley. And what's the, and I just think it's important too on the post-op labs, especially if you have a kidney that's a deceased uh, after cardiac death donor kidney, um, that uh, those oftentimes do not work right away and they may, the patients may have a high potassium. So it is important to keep an eye on those labs, not only to follow the creatinine, but to make sure you're following the potassium and uh, to see if you need to call your nephrology friend for some dialysis. Are there any special considerations for dialysis after um, a kidney transplant? Like, is there something that the nephrologists are doing specifically because there's a newly transplanted kidney or is it pretty standard dialysis? Well, we try to remove too much volume. You actually want to keep them a little bit above their dry weight. You want the kidney really well perfused. You certainly don't want them dehydrated. So we try not to dialyze just for volume. So sometimes in the operating room, we have a close communication. Well, actually always in the operating room, a close communication with our anesthesiologist. Like, do we expect this kidney to work and they'll pee? Or do we have to be really careful about how much volume we're giving them? So we don't want to put them through kind of the hemodynamic trauma of dialysis, dialysis if it's just for volume. This potassium, it is what it is. So we need to keep them safe, but we try not to just for volume. What is the history of the placement of the, the transplanted kidney? You know, right now we're replacing them 
retroperitoneally and in, in the groin. Has it always been the case? And what's the, his, the evolution of that placement been? So it hasn't always traditionally been the way we do it. Um, you can certainly hook up the arterial and um, venous anastomosis almost anywhere along um, you know, your aorta, your IVC, it's just a matter of so much of the, the ureter. You can do a UU and do that traditionally just to the native ureter. You can do a nephrectomy and people have done that in the past. This institution did that in the past. They would do a nephrectomy and connect the ureter directly to the native ureter. It's certainly much easier we found to be close to the bladder, that short segment of ureter. Um, so that, that was an evolution. Another evolution has been kind of the placement left versus right and depending on which kidney. Um, a number of years ago, I think maybe 20 years ago, um, it was more of a tradition, if you had a left kidney, you'd place it on the right and a right kidney placed on the left so that the renal pelvis and the ureter were more anterior in case you needed to do some work on there, you had a stenosis, but that's, that's been changed since that has decreased um, as far as an operative intervention and now traditionally just on the right as choice given how easy it is, comparatively easy with the, um, the vessels and the exposure. There might be more history that I'm not aware of. Uh, any... Uh... Last remarks um, about the about the kidney transplant. This has been really good so far. I have to take a moment to remark that I, as uh, the faculty here, did not need to be in attendance, and I'm incredibly proud of these two fellows who really did a remarkable job uh, describing for you what a kidney transplant would be. And I would also like to note, um, I don't know when this is airing, but it is Women's History Month, and that you're listening to a podcast of three women transplant surgeons. So. Um, I think transplant is a phenomenal career. It's an opportunity to make people's lives incredibly different. It's fun. It's unique. There's so much research that needs to be done. Um, no matter what your, your research agenda is, if you're a basic scientist, a health outcomes researcher, if you're an ethicist, if you're into politics and policy, transplant really has it all for you. And it's a great field for women. Well, I couldn't really end the substance of the episode any better than Dr. Daggerford, so I left it at that. I think this was a really phenomenal instructional from literally a select few of the nation's best transplant surgeons, and I couldn't be more honored that these three women took the time to talk with me on the podcast. Hey, so this was our first video-based episode that focused, really drilled in on surgical technique. If you loved it as much as I did, please visit our YouTube page if you're not already watching this on YouTube. Find this video podcast on our channel and give it a like. And don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel as well because we have a lot of good content on there that you don't find on the podcast proper. And most importantly, if you think you've got a good expert experience on a particular surgical operation and you can also get us good video of your technique, reach out to us at btkpodcast at gmail.com. We, we'd love to have you on the podcast uh, to do another episode like this. Until next time, dominate the day.